0: No young person who is questioning their identity should feel that they can't get information. You know, that's what can lead people sometimes to despair. And the idea that you prevent a young person from becoming LGBTQ by depriving them of information, it just doesn't work that way. All you can succeed in doing is making a person miserable and isolated and sometimes despairing not what educators or parents or any adults should be doing.
1: This is Outcasting, public radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. This is the 21st part of our in-depth conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer, a civil rights attorney at Lambda Legal about how claims of religious liberty are being weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. If you've missed any of the series, you can listen on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Outcaster Isha now continues her conversation with Jenny.
2: Hi, Jenny. Thanks for joining us again. Hi, it's great to be back with you. The last time we talked, we were discussing the Equality Act, a federal bill that would give LGBTQ people nationwide protections against discrimination. We were also talking about an alternative bill, sort of a compromise bill called the Fairness for All Act, which would give us some protection, but would also permit some religion-based discrimination to continue. We were also talking about how the LGBTQ equality movement progresses, and strategically, whether it's wise to pursue incremental advancements. So as we think about the Equality Act, Should we be advocating for passage of the Fairness for All Act as a compromise and then fight for the Equality Act? Or would the Fairness for All Act be so full of loopholes that it might not give LGBTQ people much protection?
0: Well, I think there will be lots of arguments about this. And there are lots of arguments about this happening right now among folks who are working on both bills. And there are folks in state groups and national groups that are all really having serious conversations about what we should hold out for, what the top priorities are. As one of the people who spent a lot of time working on drafting the Equality Act, well, I think that's an important way to go. And I am troubled by the idea of people that are in crisis or are particularly vulnerable, who need to depend on publicly funded programs being subjected to religion-based discrimination. Unfortunately, there's quite a lot of that that affects members of our communities. And those members of our communities have a real call on us for protection and support. So whether we think of them as loopholes or limitations in the Fairness for All Act, I think it would be unfair to folks who need our help. You know, so that's why I would not support passing that bill.
2: If the Fairness for All Act were passed... Might that undermine chances in the future to enact the more comprehensive Equality Act?
0: Well, in my experience, it's very hard to narrow religious exemptions once they have been granted. State laws vary quite a lot about the extent to which religiously based institutions have special treatment and special exemptions or are required to follow the non-discrimination rules that generally apply. I think it would be highly unlikely that if the Fairness Act were passed, that there would be an opportunity, probably not even, (laughs) not soon, and not later, to come back and try to pass the Equality Act. I don't know in this particular Senate what's likely to happen. I know there are lots of intense conversations that are ongoing now about what this Senate is going to be willing to pass, what it should look like. but. My concern about bills like the Fairness Act are that some of the institutions that provide essential services, and by this I don't just mean social services, I mean medical services, have come to play an enormous role in our social infrastructure. So that many, many of us in many circumstances need to depend on institutions for the services or the medical care that we need. And those institutions are being operated according to religious beliefs that many of us don't share. And when those services are funded by us as, as taxpayers for everyone's benefit, it raises serious legal issues, serious issues of potential discrimination and potential intermingling of government and religion intermingling of of public financing, of the exercise of religion. So we have some very serious establishment clause problems, free exercise problems, equal protection problems, and they're complicated. Our society depends on religious institutions to an extent much greater than in many other countries. That's how we've evolved as a society. We're a much more religious society than many other Western societies. And so that gives us some of these difficult legal questions. As I said before, I think an important part of the answer is continued engagement with religious institutions that as of today sanction discrimination against LGBTQ people to encourage a steady evolution away from that discrimination. And it gives me a lot of pause and concern to think about expanding the freedom of religious institutions to discriminate with public money against members of the public. But as we've seen uh, with complicated issues like this in the legislative process, sometimes it's a little hard to predict where the votes are and what the ultimate uh, agreements may be. So I am not going to try to predict because I know my my crystal ball doesn't have the batteries I would need to tell you what's going to happen in the end. Do you
2: think there's a sense among the public that we already have the protections the Equality Act would give us? And might that be causing some lack of urgency to pass it?
0: I think you're exactly right about that. If I recall correctly, there have been numerous opinion studies, public opinion studies, that show many members of the public hold two beliefs that I think are are really not accurate. Uh, One belief is that anti-LGBTQ discrimination is not really a problem. It's not something that the public, I think, seize on a day-to-day basis in a way to let them understand that there really is a pervasive nationwide problem of discrimination in many, many settings. So that's one belief that I think is a problem. The other one is, as you just said, that LGBTQ people already have all the protections that we need, the protections that the Equality Act would give us, and that whether they think that that is from the Supreme Court or through existing law, I think people don't necessarily know, but I think they don't perceive that there's a problem. Now, the reality is that thanks to litigation that some of us have been doing for a long time and the Supreme Court's ruling on the Bostock case, effectively, there is quite a lot of protection in certain areas, but a future administration and some institutions can continue to argue that that's not true. And there are very important parts of federal law where we cannot make those arguments and people are unprotected. I think a related idea is that I think many people believe the federal law governing places of public accommodation, so places that are generally open to the public to offer goods or services, that the federal law is broader than it actually is. I think lots of people would be quite shocked to understand that the federal law does not cover retail establishments. In other words, if you, if you have a mall that's open to everyone, the food court is covered by the federal public accommodations law. Those are restaurants. They serve food. That's covered by federal law, but the retail stores that make up the rest of the mall are not covered by the federal law, and they're free as a matter of federal law to discriminate based on race or national origin. For example, or color or religion. So I think there are multiple aspects of our current laws that need updating. Our society has changed, and more protection is needed by everybody, including LGBTQ people in these areas where we don't have legal arguments that we can make.
2: We talked earlier about the large number of anti LGBTQ state laws that were introduced or enacted in 2021. Do you think that they're part of an effort to derail the Equality Act?
0: I don't think those state laws are specifically part of a plan to derail the Equality Act. I think they're part of an overall social movement that opposes the Equality Act and, for the most part, any other non discrimination protections for LGBTQ people, or maybe that opposes many of the non discrimination protections, if not all of them. I mean, there's a social movement that for many years has focused on LGBTQ people as some sort of a threat or a deviance or a community that somehow is posing problems to the society at large, which I've always thought is so peculiar because we're really just minding our own business here. But that movement has been underway for a long time. And so I think the proposal's To change state law to facilitate discrimination against us or to block our progress towards equality and inclusion. That's been going on, and I'm afraid it's likely to continue to go on until we have established sufficiently protections in federal law, strong support throughout the federal government, and then a lot more support through government at every level in every state. The reality is that. When we cease to be a useful political tool, folks that are looking for political tools will will pick on somebody else or pick on other issues. Clearly, some of those bills are designed to undo our successes, and sometimes that seems a little flattering, you know, to the extent that we've made steady progress in changing rules in state law so that people can update their identity documents to reflect who they really are in terms of their gender identity there are some lawmakers who then pick that as a cause to undo that progress and we've had situations where we have succeeded in court in changing state law and then the legislature just changed it back sort of out of spite which is silly i mean then we just sue again and and deliver an attorney fee bill but you know these cultural issues sometimes do take time for people to just to just get used to the idea that we're here we are who we are we're not a threat and often we are we are people within their families that they love and so it does take some time and that's part of why it's wonderful to have each succeeding generation helping to get the work done some of us who've been at it for a while are very very delighted to have younger folks picking up the torch
1: this is outcasting Public Radio's LGBTQ Youth Program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Isha is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV.
2: We all like to think that progress keeps moving forward, that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice, as Dr. King said, but we seem to be in a time of backsliding. We've talked at Outcasting about the importance of teaching LGBTQ history in schools. There are just a few states that require this. California was the first, and in 2012, We talked with California State Senator Mark Leno, who authored the bill. We currently
1: require that students learn the history of a man, an African-American man, who fought valiantly for everyone's civil rights and who was assassinated for his efforts, and that was Dr. Martin Luther King. But there was also a gay American man who also fought valiantly for everyone's civil rights and was also assassinated for his efforts, and his name was Harvey Milk
2: including LGBTQ history in school curricula, helps to increase acceptance for LGBTQ people over the long term by educating students about issues LGBTQ people face as a discriminated against minority. So, Jenny, how do you think it helps when schools include LGBTQ issues in education?
0: Well, I think it helps in multiple ways. And first, I would say, you know, we we talk about progress moving forward and is it in one direction? And, you know, I often think it's not so much an arc. I think it was uh, the late Justice Ginsburg who said perhaps a better image is a pendulum. I sometimes think of it more as a spiral, and I hope the spiral is going up, but it certainly goes forward and back and forward and back. But education about groups that have been overlooked or excluded and sometimes demonized and sometimes just dismissed, it's essential for members of the group who've been overlooked and or defamed and, and excluded, but also for the others. And I think it's partly to understand the challenges a particular group has faced or sometimes the suffering or the extreme suffering and losses that a group has faced, sometimes to understand the false images that have been spread that cause people to misunderstand each other sometimes in profound ways it's also to recognize that the contributions of members of particular excluded overlooked groups have been enormously significant and you know one example that people cite about lgbtq people or gay men in particular is is alan turing who uh, was a brilliant mathematician in england came up with a type of machine learning that allowed the Brits to break the Nazi code and was significant in being able to stop the Nazis, but was the basis for for computers and machine learning that we have now that has transformed our lives in so many ways. And for people to understand that this was a, a brilliant guy who was made utterly miserable by vicious homophobia and his life came to a very tragic end as a result. So what did we lose by having such an extraordinary person persecuted in that way and uh, not live to contribute as much as he might have otherwise? And this is true across any group that you might name. It's essential for young people growing up to be able to see those people and have a sense of self-esteem and a sense of value. We've known this about the impact on young kids of color and African-American kids in particular of being in a racist environment it has terrible negative effects on people's sense of identity and self-esteem. And of course, the same thing is true for LGBTQ young people growing up. And it's essential, I think, for for non-LGBTQ young people and people of any age to get a sense of how diminished their world, their society would be without the contributions of this group that sometimes they have been encouraged to despise, exclude, and limit people's ability to f- to flourish and contribute. Really, everybody has a stake in seeing each other with respect and having our schools and society be a safe and supportive place for everyone so all of us are are able to provide our full contributions and live a f- live a full life it's essential. <laughs> it's absolutely essential and I always am hoping that more states will follow the lead of California and the other states that have adopted inclusive curricula and that at the federal level there will come to be more guidance from the Department of Education along exactly these lines. It's a it's a hotly disputed area, but it's tremendously important.
2: Until that happens, most states aren't requiring that LGBTQ history be taught in schools. Some people say morality should be taught at home, not in schools. And this seems to have religious overtones. What would you say to them?
0: Well, it's interesting, you know, we do have some special rules about sex education that just that treats sex ed differently, not in all schools, but in many schools, gives parents an opportunity to opt their kids out or to have. More information and more say-so about what the curriculum would be, but not about the rest of the subject. And right now I'm talking about public education, not so much private religious schools or private other schools. There's nothing new about objection to LGBTQ people coming out and having our social lives and building our families. There's criticism from some that gets phrased in terms of morality-rooted in particular religious traditions. In fact, the Supreme Court in 1986, in the Hardwick case upholding Georgia's law that made it a criminal offense with serious penalties for two gay men to have sex in the privacy of their own room, uh, that court decision was filled with references to religious doctrine in a way that honestly was, it was peculiar. I mean, this was a case about constitutional law and Bible citations should have no Place in it certainly not as as authority that dictates what the answer should be. So these arguments are not new, but we have made a lot of progress over time, and we have to continue to point this out to people that if we're talking about a public school, students are entitled and should receive factually accurate information about a range of topics in history and in culture, in literature. It's certainly the role of parents to provide religious education to the extent that they wish to, and to provide their own perspective about a range of things that they think are important for their, for their children to know, but not to dictate what the curriculum should be for everyone else in a public setting, and nor to deem anything about LGBTQ people to be a morality issue. I mean, <laughs> you know, there are morality issues that affect everyone, and then there are other issues that affect everyone. And being an LGBTQ person uh, shouldn't really be changing that calculus, shouldn't be changing something that is an is- an issue of science or literature or history into a morality issue just because it involves an LGBTQ person. I mean, that's it's it's not a new issue, but it apparently is one we have to continue to explain.
2: I think the idea may be that if kids aren't exposed to LGBTQ information, that makes them more likely to be LGBTQ. Do you think there's any truth to this? It doesn't seem so to us.
0: I think it's pretty well established at this point that exposure to information or the withholding of information about LGBTQ people does not change what a person's sexual orientation is or their gender identity is. You know, being exposed to information can help a person recognize that they're not alone that they're not the only person that has ever had these feelings or had a sense of who they are that is different from how other people see them. And that's among the things that's so important for young people to know that there's nothing wrong, there's nothing unique or terrible about being an LGBTQ person. We've always existed in every society throughout time people can feel so terribly isolated so it really can be life-saving for there to be education that includes us for who we are in an accurate way that doesn't closet and hide the LGBTQ identity of important historical figures so that all of the kids in the class can recognize the again the the fact that we've always existed and we've made important contributions and no young person who is questioning their identity, should feel that they can't get information, they can't figure it out, they can't have support. You know, that's what can lead people sometimes really to despair. And, you know, the idea that you prevent a young person from becoming LGBTQ by depriving them of information, the psychologists and social scientists have established over and over again, it just doesn't work that way. All you can succeed in doing is making a person miserable and isolated and sometimes despairing. And, you know, that's obviously not what educators or parents or any adults should be doing.
2: So the choice isn't between having LGBTQ kids and having straight kids. For kids who are LGBTQ, the choice is between having them happy and secure or not letting them be happy and
0: secure. Well, yes, Isha, that's exactly right. We are who we are, and we don't change in particular queer and trans kids don't become straight and cis by whatever information is given to them or withheld from them in school or anywhere else where they may spend time they they are who they are we are each of us is who we are and the choices between whether parents will be encouraged to accept love and support their kids in figuring out for you know for each person who am I and how can I be my best self? And to not have families pulled apart and to not have kids feel unsafe in their own home based on the idea that parents should push their children to conform and change or that any other adult leadership should push kids to be somebody that they're not, that just makes people miserable. And that approach is part of why we see these horrifying statistics, for example, here in LA, that studies repeatedly confirm that, you know, we have a lot of young people that come to LA having run away from abusive situations where they felt so rejected at home and they they come to the streets of LA <laughs> looking for a future of some sort. Forty percent of the young people who are living unhoused in LA are LGBTQ kids. I mean, we have to change that. And the change needs to start at home, and it needs to be consistent in schools and clubs and all the different places where young people spend time. So you said it really well. It's true, and it's what we have to really work for.
2: Young people these days seem to be more accepting of LGBTQ people than earlier generations, and we can hope they'll grow into accepting adults. On the other hand, there are a lot of forces, including lack of education, that contribute to ongoing anti-LGBTQ sentiment and discrimination. Which do you think will dominate going forward?
0: Well, I certainly hope that the acceptance, the recognition that that we're here, we're fabulous, we're fun, we're fine, that that's the view that will prevail, will grow over time, and will ultimately prevail. And I find it reassuring just... Seeing in television programs, in movies, in advertising, in so many places in public life, an inclusion of LGBTQ people like never before, I think that's tremendously positive. And the narratives in in a lot of these programs the LGBTQ characters are there like everyone else. It's <laughs> the, the stories are not just about their LGBTQ identity. The stories are about all kinds of things with their identity being just one more thing in the mix. Of course, I do worry because we are experiencing some social and political backlash that's quite profound. And in other parts of the world, we're seeing the rise of authoritarianism in some places and backlash against LGBTQ people. There are certainly some places where American religious and other leaders have gone and are spreading anti-LGBTQ political views and religious views and increasing the persecution of LGBTQ people in other places. So I, I don't take any of this for granted. I think going back to that beautiful phrase about the arc of the moral universe bending toward justice. It bends toward justice when we all work together to bend it. It doesn't bend itself. So whichever set of views is likely to prevail in the coming years does depend a lot on how much we all participate and continuing the conversations, the coming out, the doing the work to help a lot more people have the information that will help them relax about these issues. There are some folks who are making their role and their political success by demonizing us and othering us in many ways. And the answer to that is always for us to stand up and speak out and to come out and to dispel the things that are said about us that are not true. We have the power to do that. And if we keep doing that, then I will have that much more confidence. And I do have a lot of confidence because I think it is happening, that it will continue to happen and the acceptance and inclusion will dominate in the coming years. We're out of time, but we'll continue this next time. Thanks, Jenny. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: That's it for this 21st part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants, Isha, Rose, Jada, Justin, Lil, Charlotte, Tim, Sasha, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. You can also find Outcasting on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, radio public and other major podcast sites and connect with us on facebook twitter instagram and youtube at outcasting media if you're having trouble whether it's at home or school or just with yourself call the trevor project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org the trevor project is an organization dedicated to lgbtq youth suicide prevention Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. Alright, I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 Or online at TrevorProject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org Under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources Thanks, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible
2: contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support.
0: To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.